0: This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 19, recorded October 24th, 2011. We have a full show today for you. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, along with my co-host, Lionel Chow. Thanks for being here, Lionel. Hi, Tim.
1: I'm looking forward to uh, today's slate of
0: topics. Yes, we, like I say, we've had a, we have quite a lineup. Unfortunately, none of our other co-hosts can make it today. They're all busy, and we'll let them off the hook this time. I wanted to start off by just mentioning a series of papers that have come out that related to previous TWIPO episodes. So there were several papers recently that were published about hedgehog signaling. As you recall, in episode 5, we discussed itraconazole and how it is an uh, inhibitor of hedgehog signaling, and mainly we were looking at uh, some brain tumors in that uh, episode. But a couple of papers have come out now about hedgehog signaling other cancers, including neuroblastoma and rhabdomyosarcoma, So there was, I just wanted to briefly mention these rather than going into them in detail. Uh, the neuroblastoma one appeared in a journal called Cancer Letters, and at the time that I printed this, it wasn't out in the actual press yet, so it was released online uh, and about two months ago. And it looked at uh, sonic hedgehog signaling in neuroblastoma models, cell lines, and and some patient-derived samples, and also looked at what's thought to be a cellular compartment or a subset of cells that are thought to represent, perhaps, the tumor initiating cells, so-called CD133-positive, CD15-positive cells. And those uh, also had activated hedgehog signaling, and uh, all these seem to be uh, cells, populations seem to be inhibited or killed by an inhibitor of hedgehog signaling, cyclopamine. And this paper didn't really have any in vivo treatment of any animal model, um, but but did imply that this signaling pathway is important for these cells, and perhaps targeting Hedgehog signaling may be useful for neuroblastoma in the future. And then there were a couple that came out on rhabdomyosarcoma. There was one in the International Journal of Oncology and one in Pediatric Blood and Cancer. The one in the International Journal of Oncology uh, was from a group in Japan, while well, the One in pediatric blood and cancer was from a children's oncology group uh, based uh, mainly with Fred Barr's research in Pennsylvania. And both of them looked at various aspects of hedgehog signaling in rhabdomyosarcoma. They looked at cell lines again as the neuroblastoma paper did. uh, And they looked at the effects of uh, inhibitors of hedgehog signaling on these cells. And they have a lot of molecular data looking at downstream pathways of hedgehog signaling the different genes that are regulated by that, showing that they're activated. And in Fred Barr's paper uh, from COG, it seemed that uh, they found it most activated in, in rhino-rhabdomyosarcoma tumors, but only rarely in the alveolar subtype. As you know, there's, those are the two main subtypes. And the alveolar is, tends to be the most aggressive and deadly. So it would be nice if we could find good targets in that subtype. But both papers... Looked at a lot of molecular data and a broader range of a broad range of different cell types, and although again neither looked at in vivo efficacy models, um, but anyway, both of these are provocative in terms of potentially thinking that a Hedgehog signaling may be a, uh, a target. Um, yeah, the Hedgehog pathway
1: really is a fascinating pathway uh, involved, uh, as um, you've sort of alluded to, in, uh, in in a lot of developmental contexts. So this is really a a pathway that in which there's a lot of research going on, um, both um, you know in
0: in the oncology field and in the non-oncology field, and and we're certainly going to hear a lot more about this pathway in the future. Yeah, it seems to be important. It seems to be important in in so-called stem cells and cancer stem cells, and maybe something that that plays an important role in cancer therapy in the future. So that I think we're just at again the beginnings of, of looking. Right,
1: right. And and, and, as, and as we pointed out, you know, we now have these um, um, pharmacological tools to manipulate the pathway, which uh, really uh, increases the number of things we can do uh, from, a, from a research standpoint to not only ask about what these pathways are doing, uh, but to think about ways to manipulate them um, in,
0: uh, in patients. You know, that paper that we mainly highlighted in episode 5 looked at intraconazole as a repurposing drug yeah. uh, or repositioning. They had done a big drug screen and found that that was an inhibitor of the smoothened signaling, mm-hmm. which is part of the hedge- hedgehog pathway. And Maureen O'Brien and I talked at, during that episode a lot about the fact that, well, this is a drug that has a lot of drug-drug interactions and doesn't have a good CNS penetration, right. Right. so it might not be that useful, and we recommend it against sort of people trying it outside right. of any kind of clinical trial, and that there needed to be better generation drugs. But Rhabdomyosarcoma or neuroblastoma mostly are not in the CNS, and so it brings that issue up again. Is, is this something that people could take or look at um, to treat those cancers? And I still think all the other caveats we talked about during that episode right. apply. Right. Uh, you know, we wouldn't recommend that for anybody, but it is provocative to think about. And, and you know, the, they require high doses and so forth, and um, with the drug drug interactions, it's, it's potentially scary to just throw that in without doing it under of a clinical
1: trial? Sure. I mean, at the minimum, uh, uh, it, it because the drug is uh, approved by the FDA uh, already, I mean, at the minimum, that would uh, facilitate the design of a, of a proper clinical trial uh, in a fairly short order. And it would also make, you know, there might be somebody out there who is uh, already sort of undertaking a retrospective study to look at uh, um, uh, patients that coincidentally were treated with uh, um, draconazole for other reasons and how they actually did... Uh, um, with their uh, Rhabdomysocoma
0: endoblastoma, that might be interesting too. Yeah. Now, you looked at some papers uh, that we had talked about in Episode 13, a paper about cell phones and brain cancer in kids. There's been a lot of activity in that. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, my goodness. So uh, so this is a really charged issue, I think, um, uh, pitting uh, you know, uh, proponents of cell phones, namely the, um, uh, the, the cell phone industry, of course, Um, against uh, public health advocates uh, with the WHO thrown into the mix. It's it's really a complex story. And um, uh, so what's happened is that we we presented this paper uh, in episode 13, as you mentioned, which um, was a paper that was published in the Journal of um, the um, National Cancer Institute um, that looked at cell phone use in children and uh, concluded that uh, childhood brain tumor risk was not increased uh, by their cell phone usage. And as I mentioned, since then, uh, several public health advocacy groups, um, and in particular, a group called the Environmental Health Trust, um, have uh, been very vocal in publishing you know, reports um, that criticize these studies. Now I think we have to be very really careful because these are, the reports that have been published are not peer-reviewed reports, they're reports that have been published on um, these uh, organizations' websites. Um, and, and there 's no peer review involved in this, uh, so that 's sort of the, the caveat. It would have been nice for them to have, for example, submitted a letter to to the journal um, and, and engaged in the debate, but that has not happened um, but nevertheless, what the reports are, are saying is that the, they 're pointing out some of the flaws in these studies um, and then some of the associations between the potential associations between authors and um, and the cell phone industry so in this particular paper that we presented um, the, the, the Environmental Health Trust report sort of looks a little bit deeper into it and, and, and identifies that they're actually in, buried in the data of the paper. There were actually some uh, suggestion that uh, children who had either longer duration of uh, cell phone usage based on the data of their subscription uh, or more hours of usage actually had a two- to three-fold increase in uh, their risk of uh, brain tumors. Um, in particular, gliomas, Uh, and then, as I said, they point out that uh, several of the authors uh, do have uh, uh, ties to uh, the telecommunications industry in in Europe. Um, So they basically uh, point these points, uh, point these... If true,
0: that's a little sneaky because we looked over that list specifically for that and we were unable to identify any such associations. Yeah,
1: that's correct. It it, It is quite sneaky. Um, and, um, and this issue is, uh, is, is I, I just, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, there's a lot of different people in the mix. Um, uh, our listeners may be aware that uh, the World Health Organization in July issued a, uh, um, uh, a statement that, um, cell phone usage is a possible, uh, carcinogen for brain tumors, uh, meaning that, um, uh, and, and this, this statement was based on limited, I think the term that they used was limited studies and that the WHO recommended additional investigation. I think, you know, as we said in episode 13, we all sort of need to take a step back and um, try to see exactly what's happening in this field. The, the, The problem is that brain tumors in general and gliomas in particular are rare diseases. They occur in very few patients, especially in the pediatric age group, but even in the adult age group, they occur in very few patients every year. And in order to see a trend or or a definite link between an environmental exposure, studies need to look at not just hundreds of thousands of patients, of of individuals, of of people at risk, but at millions of people at risk. And none of the studies have done that to date. And then on top of that, the development of this tumor takes years. So doing those studies would take many, many years. And then to add into this mix, uh, over the last decade, I mean, we all know that cell phone usage has um, has exploded among the population and especially you know the population of young people and so the studies that were initiated maybe ten years ago or fifteen years ago are looking at a different exposure level than what people are seeing today, and the technology has 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 changed, so the type of um, uh, electromagnetic ra- radiation that might be being emitted by cell phones 10 or 15 years ago are very different from the ones uh, that we all have in our pockets today. So it's a very complex issue, and um, and I think we need to
0: approach this with uh, a degree of uh, common sense, uh, basically. So if there had been an increased rate of brain tumors recently, then it would make sense, I think, to really look at, is that a cause or not? But as far as I'm aware, there's no such... Increase, correct? That's
1: exactly correct. And in fact, uh, that's a very important piece. That's the only sure piece of data, in fact, is that we have what we know what the rates of uh, brain tumors are over the last uh, uh, 5 to 10 years, and that has not increased appreciably, uh, either in adults or children. Now, that being said, I mean, we go back to the, the first thing I said, which is that these are rare diseases. So if there was a slight increase, that might not show in the data yet. But it, it's, it's a very hard question to
0: answer. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that bother me about this whole topic. Yeah. You know, my I have three kids, they've all had cell phones for many years, and I've watched them use their cell phones, right? The only time they put them up close to their head is when their parents call them, okay? They're using them to connect with their friends by text messaging. Yes. I've been watching them all weekends since we decided we'd talk about this, you know, today, uh, and, and, and I've been watching them. They hold them in their hands, okay, all the time, texting, 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 but they're rarely talking to, to them on the phone, and... You know, or, you know, they're either texting or looking at data, you know, websites or whatnot. And so, if they should get a cancer anywhere, it's on their fingertips. Right. Not on their brains. So that, to me, seems like a, a sort of a logical a flaw to this whole concept. The other thing, like you said, it takes years to develop. So, looking at it in, in kids almost doesn't make any sense.
1: Right. Um, well, of, of course, the, the you know, one of the things that um, uh, we as pediatric oncologists are, uh, are worried about, or at least... Uh, I wouldn't say worried. Uh, uh, one of the things that concerns us is that ch- children have a thinner skull, especially young children have a thinner skull, and their brains are still developing. So we don't know that whatever environmental exposure that is um, uh, uh, that has effect or no effect in adults might have a different type of sure. effect in children. So, so that's the only caveat to this whole story. But uh, that being said, um, uh, I-, I think the data does show that if there is a if there is going to be a link between uh, this exposure and brain tumors, it's not going to be a really strong link. It's not going to be like ionizing radiation, and that's what makes this such a difficult issue to, uh, to sort out. I'm just thinking
0: about all the people and time and effort and thought that's going into and the money that's going into these studies. Boy, I sure would like to have all that resources focused on biology. Yeah, biology yes. things that we have in hand as problems today. Yes, all these kinds of cancers that we can't cure. Yeah. Yeah, so I agree. it's kind of a shame. Yeah. You know, if if it's going to be that difficult to show it, oh, if you have to look at millions of people in over 20, 30 years, is it, is it worthwhile investing those resources in it? If we had seen a big uptick in, in cancers now, I, you could argue yes, we need to answer that. I agree with you, yeah. But I'm not sure we can. Yeah. So
1: I think, you know, the answer is that we need to be very uh, uh, vigilant about the uh, epidemiological data on incidents right now and then go from there.
0: All right, so the next topic I had on the list to talk about today is uh, this summer. Interesting things happened in the oncology field. Uh, there was a number of new drugs approved for cancer, and this is an area that's been criticized over the years that very few new drugs for cancer have been FDA approved. You know, most of what we use for the pediatric cancers to date have been uh, early chemotherapy drugs developed in the you know, 50s, and we just have figured out how to use them better, Right. what doses and what schedules and what combinations. And there have been very few new approved drugs. And boom, 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 we had three approved in a row this summer. And some of them may be useful. Uh, they're obviously, as most cancer drugs are, they're going to be approved first in certain adults, that have, targets that have been tested, but may be useful in pediatric cancers as well. So first one, um, Brentuximab, can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, uh, so, uh, well, first of all, I mean, just to mention that the three drugs that we're going to talk about, um, the really exciting thing to me is that they all represent molecularly targeted agents, um, which is, as you and I know, I, I mean, are things that we feel is the way that oncology is heading in the future. So it's almost like the future is starting to arrive now, which is exciting. So the first one, as you mentioned, is bentuximab um, vedotin. I'm not sure how they're going to end up pronouncing that. It's, maybe it's uh vedotin. However, this was uh, approved on August 19th uh, of this year by the FDA and it was granted accelerated approval uh, for two forms of lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma and a uh, rare type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, called anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Uh, And the approval was granted uh, in the relapsed or progressive disease setting, as you mentioned, uh, in adults. Now, the reason we're mentioning them here today is because both of these forms of lymphoma also affect children and teenagers. Uh, And so this drug is definitely going to be of interest to uh, our listeners. So this particular agent, bentuximab uh, vedotin, is an example of an antibody drug conjugate um, in which a toxin or a chemotherapeutic drug, in this case, is attached uh, physically to the antibody. In this case, the antibody is directed against a cell surface protein, uh, something that's expressed on the cells of, 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 uh, on the tumor cells, and this protein is called CD30. And we've known for a while that CD30, uh, is expressed on the majority of the tumor cells, uh, in Hodgkin's lymphoma and in anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Uh, and in fact, CD30 is, is used as a, um, Diagnostic test uh, in many instances for these two types of lymphoma, and the drug. So this this particular antibody is attached, as I mentioned, to a drug uh, which is called monomethyl or a E or MMAE, uh, and this is a drug which I, I don't believe, uh, Tim. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe this drug is actually used um, in any other chemotherapy regimens right now. I, I don't think so. Right, um, but it targets the process of cell division and more more uh, specifically, the process of uh, uh, it binds to microtubules. So we have a lot of drugs that are use in, used in, in, in used uh, chemo, as chemotherapy to target this particular process of cell division in microtubules. The reason this uh, drug was granted accelerated approval was because there have been um, two main studies that have been uh, performed to date looking at uh, the use of this drug. One was a phase one study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in volume 363, page 18, uh, 1812, with the first author uh, of Anas Yunus, uh, Y-O-U-N-E-S, uh, and uh, his colleagues from uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. The title of this paper was Brentuximab Vidotin for Relapsed CD30-Positive Lymphomas. Now, in addition to this initial phase one study, and we'll get into the results in a second, but in addition to this initial phase one study, there was, there's also been a phase two study from, uh, uh, done by the same group of, of, of investigators, which has yet to, be, yet to be published in full. But my understanding is that these results have been presented uh, at the 2011 American Society for Clinical Oncology's annual meeting this past June. And I came across also a uh, focus article that was published in uh, in October fifteenth, this this October fifteenth issue of Clinical Cancer Research, and the first author on that uh, study uh, is Jessica Katz. Uh, sorry, it's not a study; it's a um, sort of like a review paper. And in this review paper, they go over some of the, I guess, preliminary data should be considered preliminary data because the study is not out yet uh, uh, from the phase two um, efficacy trial. And so, basically, th- the bottom line from these two studies is that. For Hodgkin's lymphoma, what they found, what the investigators found, is that seventy-three percent of patients treated with this drug had a partial or complete response to uh, this agent, and that eighty-six percent of anaplastic large cell lymphoma patients treated with this drug had a partial or complete response to this agent. Um, You know, we've looked at a lot of phase one, phase two trials, and these kinds of, and for relapse disease, uh, these kinds of numbers are just.
0: You, you know, do Astronomical. Exactly.
1: Awesome. And, and what's even more impressive, though, is that the median duration of the response in this relapse setting has been over a year in both of these groups of patients. So that's also incredibly uh, uh, promising. And so it was based on these two studies that the FDA granted um, uh, the accelerated approval, and rightly so, I think, uh, patients uh, need to have access to this drug. Currently, uh, I did a quick search at clinicaltrials.gov. And currently, uh, there there are multiple trials ongoing, including trials, uh, including a phase three trial in the relapse setting for adult uh, disease, including trials addressing the use of this agent uh, for upfront treatment for these diseases, and trials that are also open uh, to patients in the pediatric age group, although it looks like uh, those trials include the adult age
0: group as well. There There isn't a, as far as I could tell, there isn't a pediatric specific trial that's open. Yeah, well, with, with uh, data like that, people are going to jump on it, of course, so yeah. it's very exciting, um, especially the duration of the response and in this setting, like you said. You know, there are two other drugs we were going to highlight that were also FDA approved, and they're also molecularly targeted, and I think these, these molecular targets uh, come on the heels of our discussion of personalized medicine and yeah. targeted therapy from episode 18, so... Uh, it's particularly interesting to see these come through. The, the second one is actually for melanoma, and most people think of melanoma as an adult disease. It does happen in kids as well, and even though a very small percentage are in the pediatric age group, it amounts to actually a fair number in the pediatric age group, and uh, we certainly see uh, our fair share of patients who, who need better therapy. So uh, this drug is called Vemurafenib, and the uh, as you can see, the, it's got the syllable RAF in it, so it's a RAF inhibitor, just like we know serafinib, which is probably the more better known RAF inhibitor. But uh has undergone a number of other trials. It's previous phase one and two trials have been had shown a, a nice response rate in up to 50% of patients with metastatic melanoma. So the most recent trial was phase three, so as opposed to your phase one trial. This appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in the June 30th edition, page 2507. And there was an accompanying editorial uh, on page uh, 26. Uh, This is in issue uh, 364. So in that phase three trial, patients got either this targeted femurafinib drug, uh, which is also being called the zelboraf. There's your syllable again, the RAF. So that gives us a hint of what it does. This is a drug that specifically inhibits BRAF. So there's several different kinds of um, RAF proteins. And this inhibits a mutation at amino acid 600. So this converts a valine to a glutamate at position 600. And that mutation appears to be particularly sensitive to inhibition by this drug. And so what the company did was also, in conjunction with developing this drug, develop a companion diagnostic. So that's becoming more and more popular these days to figure out if we can make a biomarker to predict who's going to respond. And so they've done that. And that companion diagnostic looks for this V600E mutation. Uh, so, in this phase three trial, they looked at 675 patients. Uh, now, in this case, of course, being a phase three, they were able to take uh, previously untreated patients, but those were patients with high risk metastatic melanoma. And they were then randomized to either get uh, this, this RAF inhibitor alone or a chemotherapy drug calculator to carbazine. And then they looked at how patients did. And at six months, the overall survival was 84% as opposed to 64% in the decarbazine group. So there's quite a difference there in overall survival. Even though these are targeted drugs and they you think, you know, they have very specific activities, none of them are without side effects. And uh, there were common adverse effects, effects with this drug, including arthralgias, rash, fatigue, alopecia, meaning you know, loss of hair, so they don't get away from all of the toxic side effects of conventional chemotherapy. Interestingly enough, there were some patients that also developed squamous cell carcinoma. So, this drug itself can induce the cancer, although that's usually readily treatable and not as deadly as melanoma. Also, it induced um, or caused some nausea and diarrhea and photosensitivity. And about a third of patients actually had to modify their dose uh, because of these toxic effects. Uh, nevertheless, it's, it's very promising, you know, very exciting for the field. And there was one particular, if anyone could get a hold of the paper, in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was a really great-looking waterfall plots, which is figure three in this paper, where they basically put a bar graph for each patient along the way. So you get 675 bar graphs, um, or half of that in, in each of these graphs, one graph for the vamuraftonib uh, and one graph for the dicarbazine group. And it shows, you know, what the best response is, how whether the tumor changed in size for each patient at at its best during the course of their treatment. And with the bemurafenib group, you see a few of the patients that that did increase, but then the vast majority, uh, you know, decreased below their baseline as as compared to the decarazine group. So there's this inflection point where it crosses, you know, the the stable disease line where it goes from patients who had progressed to those whose tumors had shrunk, and is very far to the left. Uh, you know, so very few patients have progressed in the femurafinib group, but that inflection point points moved way out uh, in the Dicartstein group. So quite a quite a difference in response. It's a nice figure that illustrates that at a glance. Um, right, and from that figure, it looks like uh, uh, almost... Um uh, what is that? Half the at
1: least half the patients had a, about a fifty percent had a fifty percent or greater response rate. Fifty percent of the size of the diameter of the tumor.
0: Yeah, and then there's a whole series near the end there where there was a hundred percent complete responses. So um, there was uh, two complete responses in the, the, the carbazine group, but um, certainly looked much more dramatic with mm-hmm. the vemurafenib group. So that's that's exciting, and, and like I said. Um, could be useful potentially in pa- in children with melanoma. I don't know or have data. Maybe one of our listeners could write in if there's any data about whether childhood melanoma is any different in terms of the rates of, of this uh, this mutation um, in, in melanoma. But it um, ought to be useful for those patients as well as there may be other cancer types that harbor this mutation in RAF. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So uh, uh, within the last, uh, I would say, uh, two to three years, there's been an increase in uh, interest in this particular protein with respect to uh, pediatric low-grade gliomas, juvenile polycytic astrocytomas in particular. So we know now that the majority of these uh, tumors are driven by, not by this particular mutation, but by, however, it's driven by a duplication in the BRAF gene which um, causes an overactivation of this uh, kinase, this protein. There is, a, there are a small percentage of uh, JPA or juvenile polycythemic astroglioma patients that have this particular mutation as well. So um, the fact that we have this drug available now really raises uh, the, you know, the possibility that it could be used in in, in this setting. Now um, you may know that uh, JPA. Is one of the brain tumors that we do a very good job at curing surgically. However, there are a number of patients due to the location of the tumor which we can't excise, um, and and those are the patients which I think could potentially benefit from this drug the most.
0: Do you know anything about uh, CNS penetration? With this, drug? I have
1: no idea. Actually, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, I should mention this uh, New England Journal paper was um, first author was Paul Chapman, who's at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and then the accompanying editorial was written by uh, Mark Ernstoff at uh, Dartmouth. The third drug we, talk, we wanted to talk about shared some things in common with these two drugs in terms of uh, was also approved in the accelerated approval route, as with the Brentuximab. Accelerated approval, of course, means that the companies are obligated to show in further studies that they, they're, they're safe as they expand the number of patients. And and uh, this other drug, crizotinib, that you're going to talk about, also shared uh, with the vemurafenib the co-development of a diagnostic assay uh, biomarker. Along yeah,
1: absolutely. So so this drug, uh, crizotinib, was uh, approved on August 26th for the disease called non-small cell lung cancer or NSCLC, which uh, as our listeners will know is, a, is predominantly an adult form of uh, lung cancer. Um, I I've never seen a non-small cell lung cancer in my That's <laughs> career in, yeah, pediatrics. in pediatrics. Right. Um, we have plenty of others to deal with. Right, right. But in particular, it's not approved for all uh, NSCLC patients. It's approved for those patients who have a positive result for a particular protein called anaplastic lymphoma kinase. And uh, that may seem familiar because we, j- we were just talking about anaplastic lymphoma earlier in this podcast. Um, and we'll get back to that in a second, actually. Even though, as I said, this is a, um, predominantly an adult cancer, there's really a lot to this story that is of interest to pediatric oncologists and to the entire pediatric on- oncology community. So this is the first drug that's been approved for that targets this particular protein, uh, the ALK protein, ana- anaplastic lymphoma kinase protein. And uh, as uh, Tim mentioned, uh, the approval of this drug has been um uh, Coupled with the approval of the molecular test that will, uh, decide whether or not this protein is present and whether, and, and therefore whether the patients will potentially benefit from the drug. And, uh, and then as I mentioned, this is a, uh, a protein which was actually initially, uh, discovered as part of, uh, uh, pediatric uh, cancers. The initial discovery of this protein was back, way back in 1994 in anaplastic lymphoma, anaplastic large cell lymphomas. And this discovery was made uh, uh, by Steve Morris and his colleagues uh, while they were working at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And they published this back in 1994, that uh, a large proportion of pediatric anaplastic large-cell lymphoma cases uh, actually had uh, a translocation uh, between two chromosomes, where two chromosomes split apart and joined back together, that caused this particular protein to be overactive uh, and therefore drive tumorigenesis. Now, this is a really rare, rare disease, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the, when we were talking about anaplastic lymphoma. Anaplastic um, uh, large-cell lymphomas, it's, it's not a very common disease. So uh, development of, uh, I think there was not that much interest in terms of uh, trying to develop drugs against this, uh, this particular uh, agent. Something we're quite familiar with in BN. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it really wasn't until, and in fact, I should mention that there, there, there was actually a drug, uh, that was published in 2007 by Pfizer. That was initially supposed to target another receptor kinase called MET, um, but in the publication, the researchers at Pfizer noted that ALK, ALK, was one of the other targets of uh, this particular inhibitor. Uh, so they kind of had an idea that this would be a drug. This drug would be effective against ALK way back in 2007. You know that was. Not too long ago, Uh, but nevertheless, uh, nothing was really done about that until later on that year when a group from Japan uh, headed by uh, Hiroyuki Mano actually identified rearrangements of the ALK gene in non-small cell lung cancer, NSCLC, and that kind of was the catalyst because uh, our listeners may or may not know, but non-small cell lung cancer affects 150,000 Americans every year. Now, even though this particular gene rearrangement that causes activation of ELK is present in only, uh, now depending on which study you look at, you know, anywhere from 2.4 to 13% of these patients, that still translates into uh, way more patients than, uh, that are, than are affected by anaplastic large cell lymphoma every year. So it translates into anywhere from, depending on which number you believe, you know, uh, 4,000 to 20,000 patients a year in the United States alone. And just to put this into perspective, our first targeted drug, imatinib or Gleevec, is a is a drug that's being used for CML, and twenty thousand patients would be more than the number of patients in the United States that get CML. So, uh, uh, so this drug has potential to uh, uh, benefit a lot of people out there. So, anyways, uh, when once they found out that this drug, this uh, anaplastic large anaplastic lymphoma elk was present in. Um, Lung cancers. A study was and the drug was available already, already in preclinical trials. A study was quickly put together uh, and it was a phase one slash two study, so one which they looked at not just dosing but also uh, response. And that was published in uh, the New England Journal of uh, Medicine. They're getting a lot of a lot of airplay from us mm-hmm. today. And this was published back in October uh, 28th of 2010. The first author here was Eunice Quack, K W A K. Uh, And this group was mainly from the Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, MGH. So what they found was they had uh, 82 uh, ELK-positive non-small cell lung cancer patients uh, that they identified with this molecular test, uh, and they treated these patients with crinotinib and found that the response rate was uh, 57%, uh, while a further 33% had stable disease, so potentially you know, that's uh, 90% of patients that potentially had uh, some kind of response uh, to the agent. And once again, this is only a phase two trial. So there was no, it was not a randomized trial. It was not a, there was nothing, there was no other group that they compared it to. They did not compare it to a uh, standard of therapy. Um, and so those trials are all underway. Uh, phase three trials are now underway. And in addition to that, there are uh, several phase uh, one and two trials in the pediatric age group for relapsed solid tumors. As well as for uh, anaplastic large cell lymphoma that are underway. Now, the other important pediatric connection to this is that back in 2008, a series of papers were published in Nature that described uh, elevations of the ALK protein in uh, neuroblastomas in a proportion of neuroblastomas. And uh, as we all know, I mean, this is a disease that we have a lot of difficulty with, and uh, the identification of this uh, particular tyrosine protein kinase, and the availability of the drug now raises the possibility
0: that we have a new avenue of treatment for, for these patients as well. Yes, it is it is exciting. And another feature about that drug you didn't mention, I don't think, is that it also is a, met, a CMET inhibitor. That's correct, yes. So um, it may be useful for cancers that are driven by CMET. Having said that, there are a lot of CMET inhibitors in, in development, and this may not be the strongest of CMET inhibitors. Right, right. But I recently had a patient, actually, who we thought whose tumor was driven by CMED and I had to go through lots of hoops to get crizotinib on a compassionate use basis for that the patient. I had to file a single-patient IND with the FDA, and we had to report all kinds of stuff. Um, and it was very difficult. So at least now, if someone wants to at least try this medicine in a, in a patient where they think it might be helpful, they can write the prescription. Yes, Absolutely. CMET
1: C- has been implicated, especially in the relapse setting, in a number of different uh, uh, types of solid tumors, so including brain tumors. So that's uh, very uh, important uh, to point out.
0: Yeah. Now, these things aren't without cost. So uh, <laughs> there was one one uh, quote I saw in a in a in a, a news re- report that talked about these three drugs that were approved, and you know they had a high costs. So it said, chrysotene, for example, costs nine thousand six hundred dollars per month. And Brentuximab costs thirteen thousand five hundred dollars per dose, per dose, and that the, the price of the them uh, your is uh, along the same same line. So that could be certainly an issue, but if they are if you know getting the kinds of results that we've seen in these early trials, you can't put a price on that, and uh, hopefully insurance companies will step up to the plate and, and pay for this. Another interesting feature or Quote I saw in an article about some of these was um, by Dr. Roselle Kurzrock, who's the chair of the Department of Investigational Cancer Therapeutics at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And she was basically talking about the fact, as you mentioned, that only 3 to 5 percent of patients with SCLC have this particular translocation, so it's a very small percentage. And she said, for common cancers like lung cancer, it's particularly unlikely that a large percentage of patients will be found to carry a specific genetic alteration, because common cancer may be more common because there are more pathways for developing the disease than less common and rare cancers. So I thought that was quite interesting. So maybe that in these more common cancers, and and this may may not have to do with how common it is at all, it may be true for all cancers that there is lots of different subsets of patients, and each one of those may have a particular driver mutation, and then a drug can be developed for in a diagnostic assay, and and then at least we've gotten something for that small subset of those patients. You know, she kind of mentioned that had chryzotinib been developed in the more traditional manner with the trials, including any patient with non small cell lung cancer and not just those with the L-translocation, you know, the drug could have been abandoned because of poor response rates. Oh, absolutely. And, in
1: fact, um, uh, that was the case for... uh, Gifitinib in, in lung cancer, where uh, the large-scale trials showed no response at all, and it was only um, after investigators went back, and um, so Gifitinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor directed against the epidermal growth factor receptor, and uh, researchers had to go back and um, uh, sequence the, the gene in these patients and, and noted that uh, it was only the patients that had a point mutation that responded to the treatment, and when we looked at that group of patients, they had a really good response. But that that was just lost in the um, uh, in, in the overwhelming group of patients that did not respond. Uh, so so it really speaks to the fact that we really need to be thinking about how we uh, uh, design trials and how we um, uh, you know show that the these drugs have activity for the right population.
0: Of right, patients. it's no longer good enough to just have the histology. Uh, determine the eligibility. It's really got to be, at least for these kinds of drugs, a molecular determination. You know, the test that they co-developed for the crizotinib to look at ALK is looking at only a test for the translocation and n- not for gene amplification, for example, or specific mutations. And in neuroblastoma, I think most of the time, it's not necessarily a translocation. It's a gene amplification or a mutation. Yeah, mutation. Yeah. So, there, uh, whether or not those dif- whether or not different kinds of mutations or amplifications um, really correlate with response, I think, has yet to be determined. And then, di- diagnostic assays for those different variations also need to be um, developed. And just looking back now, there
1: was a paper that is sort of in um, press. It's um, been published uh, online in the Biochemical Journal looking at ALK mutations in neuroblastoma and whether or not uh, they respond to crizotinib and other um, ALK inhibitors that are in development by other companies as well. And, uh, and so it looks like the drug may be effective against these other types of methods that, that ALK can be amplified. But as you point out, we need to have the right test to identify all of these, uh, these patients. So this this uh, uh, paper was published in the Biochemical Journal, uh, immediate publication, um, August 15th. Uh, first author, Christina I'm not going to do this justice, uh, shown her from Sweden. And uh, the title of that paper is Activating ALK Mutations Found in Neuroblastoma Are Inhibited by crizotinib and nvp tae 684
0: So that sounds like a, another Novartis drug that may be an inhibitor. That's correct, yes. And there's another paper in Cell Oncology that was published in May of this year uh, by first author uh, Dukers um, from mm the Netherlands, and that is entitled Anaplastic Lymphoma or Alk Inhibitor Response in Neuroblastoma is Highly Correlated with Alk Mutation Status, Alk mRNA, and Protein Levels. So, it may be that um, however you get to a higher protein level, implying that the cells are addicted to that level um, determines its sensitivity, and so we're going to need more than just uh, an assay for for translocation. That's right. So, um, there's Clearly, been a lot of activity, especially in August uh, of this year, on targeted therapies for cancer. So it's really talking about you know a new a new era, and it dovetails nicely with our previous episode on personalized cancer medicine. And um, I think is you know it's, it's exciting to to be involved in this time. But there's clearly a lot more work. work a lot more work to be done. done. Absolutely. I think let's take one email because we did get an email this week. But other than that, I think we're going to have to wrap it up since we've gone on a while. So um, we're always happy to get emails. We don't get too many, but um, really appreciate it. This one is from Jennifer, who's mother to Zach. She says, thank you for showing what is going on in pediatric oncology and personalized medicine. So she's obviously referring to our most recent episode. Um, and, uh, well, actually that was episode 17, so it was a couple of episodes ago. And as a mother to a child with rhabdomyosarcoma who has a high chance of relapse and very few new advances uh, for treatment, I love this approach. Cannot wait for a sarcoma branch to open up. So, of course, um, when we were talking with Dr. Scholler, she was just focusing on neuroplastoma. And obviously, uh, she did mention it could be applied to other kinds of cancers, but it hasn't, it hasn't opened it yet for other kinds of cancers. Can you look into what Charles Keller is doing with rhabdomyous sarcoma and personal medicine, as Dr. Scholler mentioned? Um, also, his info about tumor banking after relapse and postmortem banking. More families should know about this and be told. So I looked up... Um, Pulled down a blog entry from Dr. Keller's website that talks about personalized medicine on the horizon and talks about their developing that, the OHSU, that's the Oregon Health Sciences University. A uh, link we'll put in the uh, show notes on, on associated with this podcast online, um, so you can find it. Jennifer, thanks for writing and She also says, uh, I want to thank, uh, thank you for these podcasts that are not dumbed down for us, I understand 90% or more of everything explained with no medical training other than being around the oncology world. Uh, she also says, uh, never talk down or dumb it down perfect the way you are doing it. Keep up the, fight, the good fight, and thank you for keeping us informed. I love this podcast, and check weekly for new ones. So glad we can post another one uh, this week. And thank and you, Jennifer. Yeah, thanks for writing. We appreciate that. Again, we're happy to uh, answer anybody else's email if you'd like to send them to us at TWIPO at solvingkidscancer.org, or feel free to post it on the iTunes podcast website. The more people post there, the higher up we'll get in the rankings on on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at TwipplePodcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification with the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks again to Donald Lewinsky, our executive producer, Pat Buckley, our creative consultant, Scott Kennedy, and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, which is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.